2: Thanks for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. You know, we had two kind of competing events taking place uh, in the city of Atlanta yesterday, but that certainly affect the entire state of Georgia, if not uh, the country. On one hand, um, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar brought the Senate Rules Committee uh, to uh, Atlanta. We talked a little bit about that before the event took place uh, on our show yesterday. Uh, She Brought them here to look at Georgia's election law, and uh, really to try to build momentum around the effort to pass a federal law, <clears throat> which will protect voters from what Democrats believe is uh, the effort by Georgia Republicans, as well as Republicans and legislatures around the country, to suppress minority votes. So they, she brought her the Democratic, some of the Democratic members of the committee, the Republicans did not join in and participate in the event which took place at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Excuse me. We're going to talk about that. Uh, But then uh, 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 just really a few blocks away, uh, House leaders, state House leaders, um, held a hearing to look at the um, violence, the, the gun violence that has plagued, metro Atlanta, particularly the city of Atlanta, and to come up with their ideas for how uh, gun violence should be curbed. Again, that was led by House Republicans. Democrats did participate in that conversation, but the two events kind of uh, dueled with one another for attention, and so we're going to talk about both of them on the show with our panel today, as well as a few other important stories in the news today. It's Tuesday, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the AJC, is with us. How are you, Tamara? You doing well?
1: Hey, Phil. <clears throat> not bad at all. Thanks for having me.
2: You know, uh, Tamara, I've got to say, it's here it is. It's July 20th. It's the middle of summer. And I pick up the AJC this morning, and there's a ton of news. Every, the front page of the AJC, one story after another of important news. There's no such thing as a summer slowdown anymore, Tomorrow, especially in political news.
1: No kidding. Even kind of preparing about what, what we want to talk about for this show. It, you know, there's so many topics to get through, so it's it's uh, fun to be here.
2: I know. I know. It's it's very difficult. Uh, Adam Van Brimmer, editorial, uh, 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 p- the editor of the editorial page for the Savannah Morning News, you're with, us, of course, too. And Adam, you know, as do all the other panelists who do this show with some regularity, I send out way too many topics the day before to suggest we might talk about, and by the time the next day it rolls around, the morning of the show rolls around, at least uh, four new items appear, Adam. I make I make it hard if you really want to do the homework, don't
3: I? Yeah, but that's okay, Bill, because you somebody needs to keep all of us on our toes. We end up getting down in our own <laughs> little rabbit hole sometimes, and as you just mentioned with Tamar, news breaks fast, and, and certainly down here in Savannah, it's... It's been a, a steady deluge in July, which is usually when everybody's at the beach or, or on vacation, but not so this year.
2: What's uh, What's the big story in Savannah? What's, what's dominating the front page of the Savannah Morning News today?
3: Uh, city Council is trying to hire a city manager and at the same time deal with a lot of issues that have been looked at by task forces who all seem to have turned in their reports at the same time. And also doing so at a time when our, our city arena is about to be finished and getting a new name. Now, let's just say if you are the city government reporter here in Savannah, that you're very, very busy. Oh, and we also got millage rates and, you know, it's just
2: nonstop. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're glad you're here to talk with us today, Adam. Professor Audrey Haynes is with us as well. You know, she's a professor of political science at the University of Georgia. She also oversees the Applied Politics Program at the university, which prepares students for jobs in politics. Hi, Audrey. How are things in Athens this morning?
0: Uh, Thanks, Bill. Um, Good morning. Things are going well. We've had a deluge of rain this morning, Um, and thank you for talking about applied politics. I'm happy to report um, that we have already scheduled our first guest, who are going to be talking about um, ethics and leadership in politics um, with our own Regular CEO of DeKalb County, Michael Thurman, and Lieutenant Governor um, Jeff Duncan.
2: Oh, wow. That should be a terrific program. Congratulations on uh, that. Um, ethics in government. What an odd thought, Audrey. <laughs> well, we're,
0: we're working towards that goal, and the students that we produce always have that high on their, their thought list.
2: Um, We're also joined by uh, Andra Gillespie, professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. How are you, Andra? I'm
4: doing fine. How are you?
2: Good, good. I I, um, saved you for last because I thought I'd like to kick off uh, the first uh, topic of conversation uh, with you, if I might. So Amy Klobuchar is here yesterday, to hold the first field hearing that the Rules Committee has held in decades, um, and we should point out—I think we said it on the show yesterday—that Klobuchar has, as chair of that committee, has really expanded its jurisdiction. I mean, it's typically involved with, um, you know, kind of inner in, in, the inner workings of of Congress, uh, but she wants to make it about election reform uh, in a broader way. And so yesterday she held a hearing, which was basically some citizens and then Democrats like Raphael Warnock, uh, John Ossoff, and others. Um, But it's hard to tell what essentially came out of what they talked about, except for the Democrats reinforcing their belief that the Georgia election law is going to suppress or is intended to suppress minority votes.
4: So, uh, you know, the reason why H.R. 1 and H.R. 4 um, have an are being held up in Congress right now is, in fact, because of rules. So because of institutional rules that are making it difficult to pass, Democrats have a really difficult uh, position in terms of actually being able to be effective and to demonstrate that they're being responsive to the needs that many members of their party think is, is really exigent right now. So... Um, This is a way uh, to, you know, do some fact-finding. This is also a way to keep the issue up and to try to look responsive. So sometimes when when legislators find themselves in a position where they're not particularly powerful or they know that they can't do one thing, they will use things like hearings as a way to demonstrate that this is how they're being responsive. And so by having the hearing, by expanding the scope of the committee, Wilbertshire is trading in on her increased name recognition after having run for president last year, and uh, by staging it here in Atlanta, she's also sending a really powerful signal about, you know, one, where she stands on the issue and about uh, how responsive she can be, even knowing that right now that legislation is stalled um, in, in, you know, in the Senate.
1: A couple things um, to, to build off of what Professor Gillespie just said. Um, she's absolutely right that when legislator, legislators find themselves up against a, a brick wall, you turn around and you, you try and get media attention to at least kind of scream from the rooftops about why they're trying to do what they're doing. This gets them pre- or headlines in the local press, in smaller papers that might have been ignoring what they were doing on Capitol Hill. Um, this obviously helps Senator Warnock as he runs for re-election. He's made voting rights. It's a real centerpiece of his campaign. He was one of the the members testifying on all of this. It also, of course, highlights Senator Ossoff, who sits on the committee. Also, when it comes to voting rights, uh, you know, they're part of this, when the Supreme Court struck down um, Section 5 uh, a couple years ago, is that you know you have to kind of build a record if you're Congress, if you want to try and challenge a lot of these restrictions. And so by holding public hearings, that, that helps opponents of the current state of play build that legislative record. It is also really noteworthy what Senator Klobuchar is doing with that hearing. As somebody who spent almost 10 years on the Hill, you almost never heard from Senate rules. They were the ones who would dole out office space. So internally, they were very um, important to people. It was a way to to curry favor. I dealt with them only really when I was on a uh, committee for the press who dealt with press credentials and access Uh, to to the grounds on Capitol Hill. So sometimes we would lock horns with them in terms of what the press was and was not able to do. But this is certainly Senator Klobuchar kind of building on the name recognition she was able to generate in the presidential race. She's also been doing a lot on January 6th and using the committee that way. So it'll be interesting how much farther she'll go with this.
2: Audrey, you're on mute.
0: I'm on mute. Uh, You know, I haven't done that for a while. So, obviously, I'm back at that. But um, so just a couple of things on the Senate Rules Committee. Everyone knows the House Rules Committee and how powerful it can be, primarily because it sets the rules for debate. And the Senate doesn't do that because of the tradition of open debate in the Senate. Um, But they do have jurisdiction generally over federal elections. And, you know, in fact, they're responsible for credentials and qualifications of members of the Senate, including when you have contested elections. So they do have that jurisdiction. But what this says relates to what Tamar said about Amy Klobuchar and the state of politics now. Um, most of our elected officials, because of, you know, intense uh, polarization and competition, are finding every way they can to maximize their ability to try and move their agenda. And it says something about the Democrats, and they are—, they are utilizing every, every tool in the toolbox to promote their legislative agenda. They have these ideas, and they're working very hard um, to get them done. And really, one of the things that's already been mentioned is they're using these hearings to raise visibility on this issue. And as Klobuchar said, the Republicans could have been there. They could have brought their own witnesses as well. But they recognized that that really wasn't going to be a benefit to them.
3: Adam? Adam? Not only that, but – and maybe I've become politically cynical entirely too early into my <laughs> political uh, journalism career. But I'm seeing everything through the lens and through the prism of the elections and looking ahead to, to next year. And maybe it's dealing – what we're dealing with down here with Buddy Carter. Is he running for Senate? Is he running for House? Who's going to run against him? Is Everything seems to be a, a calculated move. And or Amy Klobuchar to come down here with uh, Brian Kemp – and it's probably going against Stacey Abrams, and and then of course next year Raphael Warnock facing a challenge that getting these voting rights, keeping this for in the forefront of people's minds here in Georgia, I think is very very important to their to their uh, election chances. And you know we're still a year and a couple of months away, so you got to kind of you got you got to stoke the fire a little bit. And that's kind of how I see what this hearing was about. And I, I expect to see more. Uh, oddities along these lines. Like we say, we don't see these very often or haven't seen them very often, but I think we're going to continue to see a, a steady stream of these over the next 15, 17 months.
1: We're all alluding to this, but it's worth just kind of saying it. Uh, Is is this hearing going to change anything when it comes to the debates over H.R. 1 and H.R. 4? Absolutely not. Every single person on that committee knows that. Every single senator knows that. Until the filibuster is scrapped, uh, nothing will change. And as of right now, Senators Manchin and... um, uh, Oh my gosh, my mind is going blank. From Arizona, Kirsten Cinema, um, they're not budging on the filibuster, and so it's not going to change anything. Um, but this goes to show also the the kind of echo chamber, you know, the electorate is in when it comes to to politics. Uh, Republicans knew they'd have no benefit talking at a hearing like this. They knew that they'd do better with their own base by holding a hearing and talking about red meat issues like the spike of violent crime in Atlanta. So that's why they they did that instead. Um, Democrats knew that they could get, um, you know, rile up their base by talking about voting rights with this hearing. So, uh, it shows what different planets everyone's on right now.
2: You know, it does, but here's an, I, it. I, it, it, Andre and Audrey, I'd love to have both of you weigh in on this, if you will. Um, Adam suggests that be, by injecting politics into this conversation, he thinks perhaps he's being cynical, but here's the fact If we are in times of deadlock on Capitol Hill, when we can't get anything passed up there... It is up to the voters next to make a decision about how they want to be involved in breaking that deadlock, it seems to me. In other words, it's not as if voters don't have a responsibility, Andra, to be part of the process to elect people who they feel will be able to represent them and move the ball forward. We're not just spectators in, in this. And so, yes, of course it's politics, but it's politics with a purpose, uh, Andra
4: yeah, I mean, I think it is politics with a purpose if voters recognize their role in all of this and take that responsibility. Um, I think what you see people like uh, Senator are doing and Senator Warnock by testifying, it's actually like a time-honored tradition that black and Latino legislators have done since they're usually, you know, in the legislative minority or have been for a lot of the last quarter century. So um, it's actually pretty, uh, it's, it's been pretty common. Um, or people to testify in committees other than the ones that they're assigned to because you weren't necessarily guaranteed in earlier eras where there were smaller numbers of legislators of color to have that type of representation. So you go to the other committee and then you testify, and that's a way, it's a kind of a way of doing constituent service on a, on a substantive issue. So it's, it's really common for this to happen. Um, and by doing so, what they are saying is, D.C. is dysfunctional, but I'm at least trying to do my job here. And you can see this by the fact that I showed up on this committee that hearing that ended up at C-SPAN or that I did in downtown Atlanta. So, um, you know, yes, you know, there may be something cynical and something somewhat instrumental about what's going on there. But they are making the case that they are responsive, even if they don't necessarily have the legislation to prove it.
0: Well, and I would add, too, if you talk to Democrats right now um, who are out there uh, doing this kind of, of advocacy of their policy, they're actually very serious about their policy agenda. They, they see it as transformative. And they've been doing some focus groups. And I'll tell you one of the results of the focus groups. Uh, one of them had to do with the um, child tax credit. And they had uh, Trump supporters who were average working family members And one of the issues that they learned from the focus groups was that people aren't hearing their message. Mm. They don't hear. They don't know. They often don't put two and two together about some of these benefits. So in in telling this one woman who voted for Trump about the child tax credit, her response was, oh, my God, that's going to change my life. I hope Joe Biden gets that passed. Wow. Mm. So, you know, some of what they're doing is trying to reach the public and some of it is for politics. That's really what politics is about, trying to pass an agenda that you think is going to solve problems and reaching the people who are going to be affected by it. And that is really hard, as Tamar said, when you have two different audiences that may not be hearing it. So they're working extra hard to reach that. And winning elections is a part of it because they cannot pass that agenda. You've seen what they've tried to do when they've had the majority, slim majority that it is, just like with HR one. It's a huge package. They put everything in there hoping, you know, that they may be able to get it passed. And that's very difficult to do. Um, but it takes a lot of effort right now. And I think that they are working on their messaging for that reason.
2: Um, Adam, uh, Governor Kemp, uh, in the closing minutes of that Klobuchar hearing held a teleconference with reporters and uh, here's just a little bit of what he said. He accused Democrats on that committee of, quote, weaponizing and politicizing voting measures by comparing the state's overhaul to Jim Crow-era laws, and then said this, we aren't backing down, we're going to continue to fight for the truth, and we're going to stand up to secure, fair, and accessible elections. Adam? Well, of course he's going to say that. He's been saying that since this, since this law
3: a uh, path because this is basically this law is the key to him winning the primary next year. So he's going to keep banging that drum. Yeah, he's going to defend the fact that the 2020 election was, was fair and accurate in Georgia. But by the way, you know, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to close some of the, the loopholes or or do whatever it needs to do to, to assure everybody that what is already true remains true. And I know that's convoluted and it's, it's something that I think that's frustrated, all of us for for several several months, but Kemp is going to keep banging that drum at least until next uh, what the middle of
2: next May, I would I would guess. Okay, um, I, I want to take just a minute, if I may. Um, Jamel Bowie wrote, I thought a fascinating piece in the New York Times uh, late last week. Um, you know, he's he's one of the premier African American opinion writers, I believe, and and he wrote a piece in which he suggested that um, while certainly invoking Jim Crow in this conversation makes sense to the people who oppose Georgia's new law and other laws like it in Republican states across the country, he said something really interesting. He said, for as much as Jim Crow dominates our collective memory of voting restrictions, it's the attack on suffrage in the North in the last decade of the 19th century that actually might be more relevant to our current situation. Andrew Gillespie, he said, a vast. this was a period of time with this huge wave of immigration, of poor uh, Irish and Germans and others. They came without property, they came without possessions, without jobs, and he said they dominated the populations in urban areas of the country. And Because they came in such huge numbers, uh, efforts were made then to suppress their ability to vote. And he sees real connections between that and what's happening with uh, voters of color in the new laws uh, in the South.
4: So I haven't asked my friends who are Southern historians, but this follows along the lines of what a lot of Southern historians try to do, which is to demystify the idea that the South is exceptional and that, like, you know, we are the bastion of dis- dysfunction and everybody else is, is doing things that are, yes. that are uh, correct. Um, so this fits. This fits this, th- th- this larger story of understanding, one, how restrictions and how disenfranchisement shape shifts. Uh, And and, and I think that that's the point that President Biden has been trying to make, uh, and others have been trying to make when they refer to this as as, as Jim Crow 2.0, is that we have to acknowledge that there are people who have used rules around the country to try to game the system for their partisan advantage. Um, You know, when I first started doing my work uh, in New Jersey, one of the things that was interesting is that New Jersey holds municipal elections in the spring. And municipal elections and school board elections weren't at the same time. Um, And it's like, why would you hold, like, these low turnout elections six weeks apart um, with runoffs in between? Um, Like, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. But it does make sense if you're trying to know that people aren't going to be paying attention and the pool of of likely voters is going to be small. And that teachers unions in particular like that, right, because they can then tell the people that they wanted to show up to vote show up to vote and everybody else would be distracted by Easter and spring break and trying to get their kids, you know, through school. Um, We have to acknowledge that that is the same type of bad gamesmanship as what's being accused of, uh, you know, nationally during this legislative debate about some of these voter changes. And the thing that I think is still the tie here is that there is this argument and this justification for face neutrality, that if you are putting, um things like literacy tests on the ballot. That was a way to get around the Fifteenth Amendment, right? That fifteenth Amendment that was, you know, specifically targeted toward making sure that blacks were enfranchised, but that would help enfranchise everybody. So you would have people clutching their pearls and saying oh, my gosh, well, we aren't, like, you know, does it say black people? Um, And so if it doesn't say black people, then it can't possibly be the case there. But if you're starting to look at sort of what the underlying intent is or potentially what the effect is on the back end of it, that's when you can start to call foul um, on these things. And that is what is at stake here. That's the debate where people are having this big perceptual chasm about what's going on here.
2: I just think, uh, um, Amelia, I think it'd be great if we can post a link to the Jamel Bowie uh, article because I think it really is fascinating uh, reading. All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. We'll be back with more on Political Rewind. Tamara Hallerman, Adam Van Brimmer, Audrey Haynes, and Andre Gillespie. Today on Political Rewind. Tomorrow, uh, quick note: Jeff Bezos has finished his uh, space flight in Blue Origin, and uh, CNN gets credit for the best headline. They say Amazon same-day delivery. Bezos goes <laughs> to space and back in ten minutes. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> All right. On a more serious note, tomorrow I said there were competing uh, events on the calendar yesterday. The competition that Republicans planned was to hold a hearing on uh, gun violence, on violent crime, in primarily in the city of Atlanta, and they made a lot of noise about how important it is for the state to step in and play a role in fighting crime because they contend that uh, city officials haven't done enough. Uh, David Ralston... Wants to add, I think, some $3 million plus to hire new state troopers who will be active in the city of Atlanta. Um, and, and, of course, you know, we know crime has been a significant problem for the last year and a half in Atlanta. Republicans certainly understand two things— Atlanta is the center of commerce for the state of Georgia. It drives the economy. So the notion that it should be an unplaced, safe place to do business is troubling on the surface. But they also understand it's a hot political issue tomorrow.
1: Sure. And to be clear... Um, the, for the Republicans who were holding this hearing, gun vi- or you know, stemming gun violence, putting any limits on guns was not on the table based on on the comments of a lot of the legislators there. But crime is a winning issue for them. It was something that Donald Trump talked about in the lead up to 2020. It's something that Republicans have really grasped on in campaigns across the country. Defunding the police has become a great way for them to unify their base in opposition. Mm-hmm. And so this is an extension of that. It's also part of the classic tug of war that we've seen in Georgia for decades between the city of Atlanta, the progressives there, and then the more conservative, uh, more rural parts of the state, which are now dominated by Republicans. So, uh, yes, of course, there's talks now about hiring new um, about 20 state troopers to patrol the the region around Atlanta, it also sounds like the governor wants to ask the, the General Assembly to pass laws to fight crime during the special session when they uh, also do redistricting this fall.
2: Um, Adam, uh, when in fact the assistant uh, chief of police in the city of Atlanta, Todd Coit, said he would love to see the legislature include just a few uh, measures on gun safety, uh, saying that um, that the problem with so many guns on the street is that it's now the first recourse when people have a disagreement is to reach for their guns. And he got pretty strong pushback from the Republicans on the committee uh, yesterday. Adam? Yeah, he did. And I don't think he said anything that the rest of us don't
3: realize. Is I think there was a day when we used to to settle disagreements by getting each other's face or if we're swinging swinging fists and now it escalates a little bit beyond that. But one thing I picked up in in the story that was written about that meeting was they talked about the number of stolen guns that are used. And I think there was a Republican from Hartwell that made some kind of reference to, well, why would we put a lockbox in a car that's already locked and going to get the stolen guns? And it reminded me of something that we just had here in Savannah is we have an issue with people leaving guns in their car and then leaving their car unlocked. We have, like, little campaign yard signs that are spread around my neighborhood, which is in, in suburban uh, Savannah. And if you go in the city, it's, it's even more so. They just say, you know, lock your car. And it, it's all about guns being stolen out of cars. And just a couple of weeks ago, the chief of police in Savannah gave a, gave a crime update and talked about stolen guns. And he talked about this year, so I guess this is probably as of June 30th. 134 vehicle break-ins resulting in 17 stolen guns. Another 72 guns were stolen from unlocked vehicles, and five guns were stolen from vehicles unlocked vehicles with the keys left in them. So it it seems like you know we all know this was a little bit of a dog and a pony show by by uh, by the Republicans on the state legislature. But you know, when don't let the facts get in the way. I guess is is the point I'm trying to make, and and they're certainly trying to to drive some interest in, to put the focus, to put the narrative on the crime in Atlanta without actually wanting to talk, talk about what maybe some of the roots of the problems are, which is not unusual for politicians.
0: Well, and, you know, I, I would add that, um, you know, when, when you get sick, you don't always take the same kind of medicine because there's a lot of different variations of illnesses that you can have. And people talk about crime, and what they don't do is break it down and apply Specific measures to specific situations. So, the most common crime is theft, uh, property crime, property crime. And violent crime is still relatively low in this country, although the perception mm-hmm. of it is very high. So, it is disheartening when you hear, you know, um, a hearing that automatically shuts off. Any suggestion that that's a possibility because, and it's departing to the public who really needs to demand that their legislators and that their city officials actually apply factual information, scientific information. There are lots of studies that talk about how to prevent crime. And I would argue that, you know, Governor Deal started um, a little bit with uh, criminal justice reform and looking at you know, factors that have an impact on people going to jail, for example, like, you know, high school graduation rates. But there's all different types of crimes. Like, and I'll give you an example for like domestic crime. One of the things that studies have shown is that if you go to, the, if it's an employed person who is engaged in domestic crime, if you actually go to their place of work and arrest them, that becomes a real sort of deterrent because people, respond to that very negatively. We don't want someone to come and arrest us and it may have an impact on what they do, but straight little things like that. So we really need to demand that they listen to someone who is in the field and who knows what's going on and respond without saying, hey, I think it's not their fault. Are you dumb? Why are you saying that? That is just absolutely ridiculous. You know,
4: this is a tough, um, issue, and I think it gets oversimplified, um, you know. And on the other hand, I think we have to look at sort of what the end game is. You know, uh, last time I was on the show we talked about this, um, and I think that there are major misconceptions about what the preferred policy preference is among Democrats. There isn't a consensus, and then there certainly isn't isn't a consensus on defunding um, among Democrats. But you know, if we were going to talk about staging. Um, with Senator Klobuchar's hearing, we have to talk about staging and what optics look like here um, and figuring out what's going on here. We also have to ask a question about what we think about in terms of the relationship between cities and states. Uh, you know, it's not the same as the relationship between state and, and federal government. But again, for people who tend to like local control, um, you like local control, except when it relates to the city of Atlanta, um, especially when that city is being run by a member of the opposing political party. Um, and so the question here is, okay, you want to make Atlanta look bad. It's really easy to like do that and make Atlanta the punching bag. Um, it's particularly easy when you have a lame duck mayor. Um, and you want to contribute to to that type of debate. But, like, what are you doing? Are you trying to influence, you know, voter preferences for the mayoral race that you go for the more law and order types as opposed uh, to the ones who may be more progressive? And we don't have the equivalent of a Maya Wiley running, you know, in in Atlanta. So uh, I think we also kind of have to, you know, question motives and understand the optics and staging work on both sides and at multiple levels of government as well.
2: Um. It, it, tomorrow, it, it. but what is certainly true here, I, well, I, I better be careful about this. It does feel to me, and, and I'm certainly open to be corrected, that in some ways the city has given the state an opening to step in here. Uh, it, we haven't seen um, the kind, of, I, I don't think we've seen the kind of uh, aggressive public relations effort, if nothing else, by the mayor of Atlanta to speak out, uh, repeatedly to go to you know Kasim Reed uh, for whatever people think about him in a negative way. He was the first guy to show up at the scene of a uh, of a violent crime to say we're here. We see what's happening. We're going to do something about it. Um, that may not necessarily be the the only approach, but it does feel as if the mayor and other city officials have been not as present to tell the citizens here and across the state, really, that they're aware of this problem, they're gonna to get to the bottom of it. Am I being unfair?
1: I think it's in the eye of the beholder, right? We've seen Mayor Bottoms recently announced that she's um, creating an office of violence reduction um, to kind of develop strategies to make the city safer. But also this is an extraordinarily complex problem and I don't think anyone has the answer. Um, you have all of these mayoral hopefuls who are participating in this endless stream of debates this summer. and everyone kind of has a couple ideas about what they do. But I don't think anyone really knows um, you know, how to deal with it because it's so complex. Every case has its own details, and there isn't necessarily a one-size fits all, solution out there so I think it's it's tough to say um, anyone really has the answer here I mean you're saying Kasim was there and, and he made a big show out of saying he's there and that's certainly one thing but does he have the answers that that mayor bottoms doesn't have um, that's unclear
2: I I th- thank you I think that's a, a, a an important modification of, of what I said um, all right, uh, let's do this. Why don't we do this? Why don't we get our final break of the show out of the way now? Because there are several uh, items I really am looking forward to talking to the panel about after these messages. <music> Quick program note before we continue with today's panel I'm uh, really looking forward to tomorrow's show. Clark Howard will be here. You're thinking about planning a summer vacation, maybe going on a cruise. Maybe is there a European uh, country you want to get into? Can you get there or not? Is Canada going to be open when Clark can answer a lot of questions about uh, travel? Uh, but we'll also talk to him about other Uh, consumer matters that I think are of interest right now in terms of things like how have shopping habits changed in terms of online buying as opposed to retail stores? What about prices as they uh, move up with supply shortages? We're going to have a lot to discuss with Clark Howard on tomorrow's Political Rewind, and I hope you can all be with us for that show. Okay. Honor Gillespie, Audrey Haynes, Adam Van Brimmer, Tamar Hallerman, continue with me right now. Uh, Adam, uh, we've talked on a couple of shows now about the uh, district court ruling by Judge Andrew Hannon, who has now said that President Obama exceeded his authority when he used an executive order to establish the DACA program, uh, and and that therefore the program is not legal, but of interest, Adam, I think is the fact that Hannon said he doesn't. He, that right now his ruling does not have any impact on the hundreds of thousands of DACA recipients who already have that classification. They are, for the time being, uh, protected. He said applications can continue to be made to the program, although none can be granted. Um, so. He was really making a statement, it felt like, Adam, more about executive uh, orders than a DACA itself, although certainly this could have an enormous impact on what happens to DACA recipients down the road. Certainly he's talking like the
3: lawyer that he is, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this is a case of not necessarily kicking the can down the road, but kicking the can over to the next court. And, mm-hmm. you know, DACA, executive orders, uh, President Obama, of, of course, did a lot by executive order, which of course was carried on by his successor and is being carried on by by president biden now and the courts are the courts are a place to to i guess to adjudicate the eventually to adjudicate the constitutionality of of the executive orders and as we all know congress there's some things that they want to jump in the middle of and and try to take try try to take action on that maybe that they shouldn't and there are other things that that they refuse to take action on that they should, and, and uh, DACA and immigration and immigration reform are something that the Congress eventually, uh, sooner rather than later, needs to be addressed. But in today's totally partisan political world, it's there's no easy answers.
1: Um, a couple points I want to make. First of all, the judge's ruling still puts in in limbo a lot of DACA recipients, including so many in Georgia. There's about twenty thousand who live here, mm-hmm. and many who. Um, you know their their DACA status is expiring or has expired, and my my colleague Paradise Afshar interviewed somebody who, at the end of of uh, June, his his status expired, and so now he can't work, and he's just sitting around and waiting and. God knows how long this could all take. There's been a giant backlog at the Department of Homeland Security because of the pandemic, the ability for civil servants to process a lot of these materials. And so now this judge's ruling makes it even harder for for people to kind of get their status sorted out. Um, Congress has been talking about this issue forever. When it comes to granting legal status to DACA recipients, that's overwhelmingly popular. Uh, Pew surveyed Americans in June 2020 And in total, about 74 percent believe uh, granting status, not necessarily citizenship, but status to these kids who were brought to the U.S. illegally as kids. The problem for Congress, though, is that because this is so popular, I think for Democrats especially, there's a temptation to use this as a bargaining chip to get even larger things out of uh, out of the GOP when it comes to immigration. So it instantly becomes more complicated anytime they want to negotiate this. Um, I think Democrats are under pressure to try and pass immigration changes through the budget reconciliation process. Uh, that's a way for them to get around a Republican filibuster in the Senate, but there are very strict rules in terms of what they can and cannot include. So it could end up being this legislative response that looks like Swiss cheese with weird stuff cut out of it that they can't address under reconciliation. So I think this is an issue that could ultimately get decided at the Supreme Court once again. Uh, they took their first stab at it a couple of years ago. Uh, they didn't really rule on the underlying program. Um, and so I think more limbo for even longer for more of these DACA recipients.
2: Um, Audrey, we should also point out that in reading stories about the court decision, the judge's ruling, uh, we learned, I learned at least, how many DACA recipients have been first responders uh, during the COVID crisis. Uh, a great percentage, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but a surprisingly high number uh, were there to try to uh, take care of people with COVID. Uh, and, and it, it, it is uh, striking to think about that because, as uh, Tamar says, they're all in limbo right now.
0: Um, well, and to follow that, I mean, it is important for the public to understand the nature of this problem. A lot of those students, um, I, and I would say students, dreamers, I say students because I've met some of them, are some of the most productive um, Americans. They, they've been in America their entire life. They don't even speak uh, the language of whatever home country. They are brought here through no fault of their own. And they do live in a constant state of anxiety about their future. But here's the issue no one's solving the problem. You have this large group of people, just practical costs of attempting to administer, sending back so many people back to places. The material cost of that is exorbitant and the human cost of it and the anxiety and, you know, potential loss of human capital is very negative too. I mean, if they want to close a loophole, close a loophole, what, you know, Congress needs to make some decisive action, but at the same time, the people who are here, who've registered, they deserve a chance to continue to give back to the country and and a path to citizenship, at least. Andres?
4: There's a lot of, I mean, first, there's a separation of powers issue. And so you have a judge here who's basically trying to put this back. Um, on uh, on the legislative branch, saying that the executive branch isn't the one who should be doing this, and so there are important questions there that I think you know do need to be addressed. Um, it's a question of sort of you know President Obama made that decision in light of legislative gridlock that was basically crippling the, um, the the legislative branch from being able to get anything done, um, and then there are some of the practical and administrative aspects to this. Judges don't have enforcement capability, but part of the reason why I think Judge H- Hanen or Hanen in this particular case allowed for applications to still be processed is one, he's a district court judge, so this is undoubtedly going to go to an appellate court where there could be some type of reversal um, or there's going to have to be some type of clarifying case about what to do for people who are already enrolled in the system as opposed to sort of like people who would just be applying anew for um, the first time. Um, and then there's sort of what, you know, what the long term implications of this. And all of this says that this could be solved if Congress would actually work together to get something passed. And so I think that Tamar's observations are pretty astute in terms of what we could see happening sort of in the sort of very, very short term in response to trying to at least clarify the status of people who are already in the program whose, um, you know, whose
0: status is expiring very shortly.
2: yeah, I'm glad. Go ahead.
0: Well, I was going to mention, you know, this is also strategic. I mean, the case came up in Texas, right? I mean, and it's a host of conservative states that were suing for it. It's also going to be appealed at the circuit court that is the most conservative circuit court in the country, the Fifth Circuit. So that has some implications for what's likely to happen. Uh,
2: What I started to say is thank you for that, Audrey. Um, Adam, If you were going to just tick off the biggest failures of Congress to be able to enact meaningful legislation in the past 30-plus years, you would have to put immigration reform pretty close to the top of that list. You've had Republican presidents, Democratic presidents. You've had uh, Republican leaders, Democratic leaders of one house or the other working Uh, in bipartisan ways to get legislation passed, and yet it fails time and time again. And by the way, Adam, you know, we we tend more than ever to uh, look at a judge's ruling in terms of who it was who appointed the judge. And Judge Hannon was appointed by George W. Bush. Some of our listeners, uh, when they heard that, have said, oh, well, no wonder he ruled against DACA. He was appointed by a Republican. But, Adam, let's make the point very clearly that George W. Bush was a firm believer in in coming up with comprehensive immigration reform. Absolutely. And and. Please, professors, correct me if I'm wrong, but George W. Bush was
3: was really a, a big favorite of immigration reform. And I think Ronald Reagan may have been the last president to actually get some real action on immigration mm-hmm. reform. So why the parties have gone completely desperate ways is I'm sure that we could we could probably list all the reasons. But it's, it's too bad that in a span of 30, 40 years to see this become such a, a polarizing topic instead of a topic that needs to be tackled from a pragmatic standpoint in order to to just get it all cleared up
2: all right um but with the time we have remaining tomorrow i'd like to turn to one other uh, story that's getting a lot of attention right now and i want to be careful about the words i use on this um let's say that we've had an increase in the number of COVID 19 cases in the state of Georgia recently. I don't know, It's we're on the verge of a surge, we're seeing a spike. I just think the language has to be a little bit careful, but to put it into actual data points, on June 20th, uh, there were 134 new cases of COVID-19 reported in the state of Georgia, and there was an aver- a seven-day average of something like 276 cases. Just a month later, as of yesterday, we suddenly had uh, almost three times. We had 369 uh, new cases of COVID. Hospitalizations are up 30%. And of those who are hospitalized, there are 480 people who have been hospitalized in the state who are now hospitalized. 416 of them not fully vaccinated. The non-vaccinated community population continues to drive the virus forward, Mar.
1: Yeah, so that's about 87% of the people people hospitalized in Georgia right now for COVID-19 are unvaccinated. And the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, put it really well uh, a few days ago when she said this is becoming a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And I think the fear is that you look at some of the states that are having the worst outbreaks right now, Arkansas, Florida, they're not too far away from Georgia. And I think the fear is that it's only inevitable that it spills across the border into uh, into Georgia, especially as so many Georgians take their uh, long-awaited summer vacations. So, yeah, it's a scary time, and I think everyone saw what happened in India um, and, and are kind of watching with increased alarm.
2: Um, uh, Adam, Um. When the virus hit, I'm sorry, when the vac- when vaccines became available, I think we do have to give Governor Kemp credit. He went on a tour of the state. Encouraging people to get vaccinated. Uh, it, it isn't as though he ever became one of those uh, Republicans who demonized vaccinations, uh, uh, said, stay away from them, they're not good for you, and that sort of thing. He and he, pu- Kathleen Toomey, his public health director, uh, did go out and try to get people vaccinated. I maybe I'm missing it, Adam, but I haven't heard as much from him and his office lately to encourage people to get vaccinated. And, and as I said, maybe I've missed it. But I wonder if it were at a point where the governor now feels, well, I did my job back then. Right now, Republicans are so so many are so uh, anti-vaccination. It's politically risky for me to continue to be so out front. That's pure speculation. Yeah, he's
3: certainly in campaign mode right now, and that doesn't fit with the the campaign narrative that he needs to be uh, advancing. But at the same time, a month ago here in Chatham County, you can count on one hand how many hospitalizations we had in our three hospitals. As of yesterday, we have 43 hospitalizations. So you can do the math and get an idea of how it's growing here. It's up 400 percent since the beginning of the month. course, we had the July 4th holiday. We're getting to the point now where we're seeing all the positive tests that come from people socializing during the July 4th holiday. Uh, The mayor of Savannah is talking about, it's not just talking about, he's already meeting with clergy and others in the Savannah community that that hosts large gatherings and kind of reemphasizing the whole idea of uh, masking and social distancing and, and even making some noise about uh, reissuing the mask mandate here, which was not really a mask mandate, but it was—it was, you know, hey, we're we're going to tell you to wear the mask, and yet somebody like Brian Kemp probably needs to go ahead and and get back on the soapbox before this thing really explodes and uh, and takes and takes on a life of its own.
4: Yeah, you know, I don't want to make this a, a, you know, a partisan issue because, you know, the Democratic president is struggling to convince the unvaccinated to get vaccinated. But eventually there just has to be some really tough talk with people to say, look, look who's getting sick. It's not the people who are getting vaccinated or who have been vaccinated. Um, And the longer you linger sort of not getting vaccinated, the slower it takes for us to get herd immunity. And the the more likely the possibility is that you get really strong variants that could make people sicker, that could break through vaccine protections and other kinds of things. And so I think the responsibility that government officials have is to talk about and confront misinformation. I don't want to get into the censorship discussion, but there are some people who need to be told they slump biology, so you don't need to listen to them and they don't have medical degrees. They have no idea what they're talking about. Um, as opposed to, you know, making it different, you know, difficult to listen to other people who know what they're talking
2: about. Audrey, put a period on this in about 25 seconds.
0: <laughs> well, people need to be informed and they need to be concerned. I know here at the University of Georgia as an institution, you know, we are planning on being regular activity in the fall, but, you know, there are real questions about this um, Delta variant, and I don't think we can just – expect businesses. I think a lot of politicians are using businesses to um, do what they need to do, but we need to get to work and together as a public.
2: Audrey Haynes, Andre Gillespie, Adam Van Brimmer, Tamar Hellerman, terrific conversation. Thank you all so much. Back tomorrow with Clark Howard. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask when it seems appropriate, and please think about getting vaccinated if you haven't done so. See you all tomorrow.